Today we continue our study of 1 Corinthians, and today we find the text in chapter 14, verses 26 to 40. And I've titled the message, Spiritual Protocol. Let's read this text out loud together. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three, should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Now, you might have noticed this particular passage contains some statements which at first reading, there's no way that we could possibly agree with. And our women and me as your pastor as well. The verse uh, 34, for example, women should remain silent in the churches. At first sight, it seems like Paul is saying, women, just be silent. You're not qualified to teach, you're not qualified to speak and engage in any kind of leadership. And oftentimes in the conservative churches all over the world, that's exactly how this was interpreted. But today, I'm going to share with you another interpretation I think you will probably more gravitate towards. And if you'll just hold on, as I expound through this text, you will come to a better understanding, more holistic understanding of what Paul is talking about. The reason why I say this before I begin the exposition is because I don't want this to be a stumbling block to you or to anybody. Because when you, if you have a bad feeling towards Paul, you're not going to be able to receive his word openly. And there are a lot of women out there, especially in the feminist movement, who have really bad, bad feelings toward Paul, thinking that Paul is a very biased, a bigot, uh, he's a hater of women, and so forth, which is absolutely not true. And I think I've taught in other scriptures, in other texts, that that is not true regarding Paul. 
and uh, you need to understand his writings in context. Well, we've been studying 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14, and today is the final message of this short series within the series in 1 Corinthians. And this section, chapters 12 to 14, have to do with the context of spiritual gifts. And Paul really wants to advocate spiritual gifts, but at the same time, he says that the gifts must be used properly in the body of Christ. And in chapter 14, we have already studied that uh, Paul is emphasizing two particular gifts, and that is the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And he wants to differentiate between these two gifts. And he basically does have a bias. He thinks that the gift of prophecy is much more superior than the gift of tongues. But in the church of Corinth, people are parading this gift of tongues. And because this reminded them of the type of ecstatic experiences they had as pagans before they were regenerated in Christ. And so Paul is saying, you may make a great deal of tongues, but much better is prophecy. Why? Because prophecy by nature has the ability to edify others, that is, strengthen others. While tongues is basically for your self-edification. Prophecy can strengthen people, can be a word of exhortation or comfort to people, and therefore prophecy edifies others. And then in chapter 13, right preceding chapter 14, Paul talks about the way of love as the most excellent way of utilizing the spiritual gifts. And here in the final section in chapter 14, we see that he's giving some more protocols as to how these gifts are to be exercised. So let's go through this passage systematically, and I'll try to explain to you what Paul is talking about in terms of proper protocol. Let's begin with verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. And we know very clearly this is the context of corporate worship. But not any kind of corporate worship. Don't, don't misunderstand this text to be saying megachurch, for example. Because uh, in the early church days, they were not able to meet regularly as a megachurch. The church in Jerusalem, as you know, was a megachurch. But there was no huge arena or huge assembly hall where all these people could be packed together. There was only one church in each city, but the church gathered together into smaller congregations in usually a very intimate home type of setting. And this is exactly that kind of setting that Paul is talking about. Because he's saying that when you come together, each of you, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction a revelation, or tongue, or interpretation. That means practically everyone should be involved in contributing to this worship dynamic. And that could only happen in the context of a small, intimate church. So one person brings a song, and naturally someone who is more musical and music sensitive, they will bring a song in their hearts. Someone brings a teaching, 
and someone brings a revelation that could be a prophecy, a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, and someone may, may come with uh, some kind of ecstatic tongues that is for the group, but it must be accompanied by interpretation of tongues. Whatever form it may be, these were articulated in words and communicated clearly so that when they are all put together, it creates an amazing dynamic of worship. When I get to this text, I'm always reminded of the, the Quaker form of worship. I don't know if you're familiar with Quakers or the Friends. They are known as Friends. And um, this was a movement that was founded by George Fox. And uh, how they worship, and even to this day, is that they would gather together in a circle, in a congregation, and uh, no one actually opens up the worship. It's not like you have a, a senior pastor who's going, a preaching minister who's constantly having the word to say, but rather they operate exactly like this. Maybe they got it literally from this text. Someone brings a song and sings the song, everyone follows. And someone opens up the word and says, I believe that the Lord wants to, us to hear this word and shares the word. Someone comes up with a prophecy or some revelation and says, you know what? God is impressing upon my heart and this and that. I don't know whether they speak in tongues, but if they do, then there should be an interpretation. Somehow, the word of God is communicated. Somehow, the spirit of God draws the church together during this time of worship. Now, this is not the normal way of worship in most of the churches. We usually have some kind of liturgy. We have some kind of format. We abide by that. We have one person who's assigned to preside, another person assigned to teach the Word on a regular basis. But what Paul is describing in the case of the Corinthian church, in the context of small church, is not bound by formality. It was more like a family atmosphere where every member of the family contributes. And I think this is a very dynamic way of worshiping. And then he says in the latter part of verse 26, everything must be done so that the church may be built up. And this is the purpose that Paul is talking about over and over. It's for edification of the church. It's about the church. It's about the body. It's about the corporate dynamic. It's not about the individuals. And we as individuals, we are given spiritual gifts. But that's not for us. That's not for our show. It's not for performance. It's not to show off. It's always for the body. And I think last week I emphasized this more than anything, that if we're given anything, it's always for the sake of others. That's the way it is in Christ. If we have anything, any kind of resource, any kind of talent, anything that we can contribute is for the sake of others. I would say, first of all, for the sake of others in the body of Christ, and then go further. It's for the sake of the community and the society. Would you agree with that? Hypothetically, that should be the way, but it doesn't work out that way. Because we're like anybody else. We, we want to save things for ourselves. You know, we are selfish. And we tend to be self-ingrown. Okay? And we think about our church or our community rather than everything else that's out there. Anyway, the whole idea is that Anything that we are given in terms of gifts, 
and talents and resources, they are all for the sake of others. Please get that clearly in your mind. Because the Corinthians obviously were thinking all these gifts are about them. So that they can parade these gifts. They can show off these gifts before the sight of others. Let's move on to verse 27 and 28. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Again, this is in the corporate worship context. And Paul says, in this kind of corporate worship context, that is in the public setting, if there is any kind of inspirational tongue that is being blurted out, then it must be accompanied by interpretation. So the protocol seems to be, first of all, let's just limit to one, two, at most three tongue speakers. If anybody feels like I have an inspirational tongue which should be interpreted by someone, then let's limit it to only at most three. Why? Why not? If there are 10 people there, why not have everybody speaking in tongues and contribute to this? Well, because it's not necessary to have everybody doing everything at the same time. It's just a sample would do. And you need variety. You need to have some songs as well. You need to have some words of instruction. You need to have some revelatory insights. A worship should not be dominated by just one type of mode. And so Paul says, three is enough. Okay, that's a good protocol. And then, when you have three tongues in succession, it should be in logical order, one at a time. Don't two, three of you just blurt it out and create a chaos. And people will be confused. Well, what's going on? And there's like echoing of all these voices. Rather, if you have three different tongue speakers, then one, two, three. They should present their tongues one at a time. But there's a condition attached. There has to be an interpretation. Because the whole idea is edification, and you cannot edify people simply with tongues because that's unknown language. There has to be interpretation. Now, some of you are not familiar with this kind of dynamics. But in the mostly charismatic churches and in the Pentecostal churches, they are kind of used to this. You know, somebody blurts out tongues and somebody stands up and interprets that tongues. Okay. And then someone else blurts out in tongues and someone else interprets the tongues. And they do this sort of like in a sequential way in worship dynamic. This may sound very, very strange to many, many churchgoers, but in some churches they do operate like this. And I think in imitation of what is happening here in the Corinthian church. But the important thing Paul is advocating is if you don't have interpretation, you shouldn't blurt out in tongues. And if you do blurt out in tongues and there's no one interpreting, then you should just shut up and sit down and quietly speaking in tongues in a private language form uh, before the presence of the Lord. That's why he says in verse 28, if there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. 
And it's okay to be quiet in the church. And it's okay to speak in the church. What Paul is saying is there's proper time to speak and there's proper time to be silent. And this is what is meant by protocol. We've got to have some kind of order here in the house. And this is the way it ought to be done. And then now he wants to talk about prophecy. He gave a little word of instruction regarding tongues. Now he's talking about prophecy. And beginning with verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace as in all the congregations of the Lord's church. He says in verse 29, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. So once again, the protocol is, let's limit it to two or three speakers, more likely seasoned prophetic ministers in the house. Just two or three. You may have ten of them all very prophetically gifted. And they may be capable of doing that, but you don't need to just exhaust everybody. You just need to limit it to a sample of two or three. And I think that's wise. And then he says that it should be done in logical order according to revelations. So, for example, one person has a revelation, he speaks. Another person who sits down, raises his hands and says, I think I have something else. And so then the one who has just spoken should sit down instead of insisting upon that he dominate the whole scenario. So next one stands up and he speaks. And then the third one stands up and he speaks. So everything should be done in the logical order. But there's another protocol added to this. What about rest of the people who are listening to the prophetic words? They should be discerning to see whether this word is appropriate word or not. They should not be all passive saying, oh, God spoke, so we have to take that at face value. No. The New Testament way is always test out the word. Test out the spirit. Let me give you two verses. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 20 to 22, Paul says, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Do not just look down on prophecy because, you know, some churches, uh, they show contempt to anything that is charismatic. They just have this uh, notion that charismatic gifts don't exist today. So if anybody stands up to prophesy, they, they just look down upon that instead of giving it the benefit of the doubt and testing out the words. Paul says, hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. What is good, you should maintain. What is not good, you should throw it out. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, John says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So test out. Don't be afraid to test out. You should test out the pastor's preaching as well to see whether the pastor is preaching according to the word of God. Okay? 
That doesn't mean that you should protest every time the pastor misses something. But you should constantly be checking the pastor out. Constantly checking the ministers out. Sometimes worship leaders out. And with wisdom and grace, we should give them words of counsel so they can upgrade themselves. Verses 30 to 31. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. So once again here, as Paul is addressing the issue of prophecy, he says that there has to be some kind of element of self-restraint so that we can stop or be silenced even in prophesying so that other prophetic ministers can take their turn and we instruct the body and we encourage the body. So here, there's a sense of team presentation and coordination. And there's a respect for other people's participation. So what Paul is obviously addressing in this case and in the former case of tongue speakers is perhaps there were people who wanted to dominate the show because maybe they thought they were very gifted in inspirational tongues or inspirational prophecy so that they would dominate the show. Have you ever had a situation where you know, one person has something to say and then no one has anything to say and therefore this person just goes on and on like 10, 20, 30 minutes? I've had a student like that in my class. You know, he, he just wanted to dominate the show. Every time he wanted to dominate. And so you have to apply strong protocol. No. Even if no one has something to say, you should stop now because we got a lot of other things to do in class. And likewise, in worship, we got all different dynamics. So it should never be dominated by anyone. This means that all of us need to exercise the spirit of restraint or silence. This is very, very important. Because Paul says in verse 32, the spirits of prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. Now there are people whom I say, but I, I have no control over this because the spirit is upon me. You have no idea what kind of inspiration I'm getting. How dare you quench the spirit of God? There are people who, who are adamant about this. And if you are a senior leader or the facilitator in any group dynamic, you should say to that person very clearly, that is under your control. Holy Spirit does not violate your self-will and overpower you. Occasionally he might do that, but he seems like overpowering. But even in those situations, we all have control. So the spirit of prophecy is under the control of the prophets. They can, they can determine how much to flow and how much to stop. You could never say, I had no, no say in this matter because the Holy, Holy Spirit was so powerfully upon me. I had no choice but to speak. Yes, you do have a choice. From all my experiences in the yesteryears in charismatic groups and so forth, Everybody has a choice. Everybody has the will to, you know, open the faucet, close the faucet. You let the water flow, 
you stop the flow of the water. And likewise, prophecy is done in such a way. And then he says in verse 33, For God is not a God of disorder but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Now he's talking about the nature of God, how God operates. This is the way He is. Therefore, we are imitating His way. And He operates all things by the Holy Spirit. And He is in the business of bringing order and peace, unity and harmony. So anything that is of chaos and reverie, showing no reverence and being arrogant or spiritually pride, this certainly has no place in the body of Christ. Because it goes against the nature of God. Now, having talked about tongues and prophecy, Paul now talks about women speaking in the church. And this should be a very interesting text for all of us. Because apart from this text and 1 Timothy chapter 2, I cannot think of any other text as... Um, as devastating for upholding women in the body of Christ and especially their leadership in the body of Christ. And yet, these texts are often very biasly interpreted. And I want to uh, take you through this text and try to interpret you in a much more holistic way. Verses 34 to 36. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only person it has reached? I want to start off by saying that this mandate about silence regarding women is not an absolute forever, in all circumstances, type of injunction. Why? Because the term for silence here, the Greek term, sigato, it is the same term that is used all throughout this entire passage. When he talked about tongue, speaker, keep silent. Keep silent if there's no interpretation. That's the same term, sigato. And when he talks about prophecy, that each prophet should be able to stop and be silent. That's the same word, segato. And here, women remaining silent in the churches, that's the same word, segato. So there's a pattern here that uh, Apostle Paul is saying women should be silent, but not across the board, universally permanently, but they have to be silent in certain way, in certain contexts. For example, Paul is not preventing people from speaking in tongues. He's saying if you don't have interpretation, and if it does not edify, then you should stop. He's not preventing people who are prophesying and saying no prophecy at all, you should be silent regarding prophecy, but he's saying prophesy, but everyone should be able to stop when it's appropriate in prophecy. Now, in that context, He's talking about women. They should not be silenced in an absolute way, but they have to be silenced if in some way they are disrupting 
the flow of worship. Besides, we've already studied in chapter 11, verse 5, that Paul put a mandate. He, he really agreed with the tradition that women should be veiled while they are prophesying and they are lifting up a prayer in the public. So, women can be vocal. They can have their voice, but they have to do it in the proper way. This is what Paul is trying to say. Not only that, the term for speaking here is the Greek word laleo, which is different from the term that's related to teaching. When you're teaching, you're giving an instruction. That term is very different. The context is very different. Here it's simply talking about just speaking or chatting. So what's going on? So some scholars think maybe these women were exactly those who were involved in tongue speaking and prophecy speaking. And maybe in the process, they just kept them going and on and on without restraining themselves. So Paul is saying, put a stop to that. Be silent. Or perhaps they were simply chatting and gossiping in the middle of a worship where there's a teaching going on. Or where there is a, a somber moment in which someone is prophesying. And they were going, what, what is that person talking about? What is this? And they were just chattering on and on. And according to Paul, it seems like there's a problem that certain married women were speaking or discussing based on their own presumed understanding and they were causing trouble in the context of the corporate worship. So Paul says to these women that they should discuss these matters with their husband. Do it at some other time, but not here. And why the husband? You might say, you know, Paul is advocating that women should just submit to their husband. No. Actually, this is a very liberated way Paul is interpreting this. He's saying that women should be educated. Women should be given the honor to be educated by their husband. As you know, in those days, in the Greek culture, even the Jewish culture, women were not allowed to be educated. There was no education for women. But Paul is saying they should be educated. If you don't know what's going on, then you should go and ask your husband who is educated. He's not demeaning the women. He's actually uplifting the women. He's saying the women should learn in the proper context at home. But during the church worship, they should not disrupt the flow of the worship. Verses 37 to 38. If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. So this is a, a very serious mandate. And Paul would not mandate something that would bind women, that would undermine women, that would demean women, so thank God there is a way to interpret this text instead of saying women just be absolutely silent in the body because that is inconsistent with everything else that Paul has been saying. Paul is saying women can prophesy. He's saying that women can pray in the public. He's saying that women can operate in spiritual gifts. When he talked about spiritual gifts in, in chapter 12, he wasn't just talking about men. He's talking about women as well. You can do all that. You can be vocal. You can have a voice. 
but not in any way or whatever way, but it has to be done in the proper way. And I love the final two verses where Paul just wraps everything up. He summarizes what he's trying to say. He says in verse 39 and verse 40, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. He's advocating prophecy. And he's, he's encouraging you know, tongues. And in this context, he's encouraging women to speak and be vocal in Christ. You're liberated. You're not anymore enslaved to the system. In the church, you're free. Then in verse 40, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. It should not be done in a chaotic way, in an arrogant way, in boisterous way. It should be done in the proper way. There's proper time for everything. To speak, to be silent, according to order and according to protocol. So let me give you some guidelines for spiritual discernment based upon what we have studied today and what we have studied in chapter 13 and what we have studied in chapter 12. So to wrap it up, I want to give you just a list of guidelines for spiritual discernment. Okay. When a prophetic word is given, these are the questions that you need to ask. And we should all exercise discernment. Does the prophetic word glorify God? That's the thing that we need to ask. Does it glorify the prophesier or does it glorify God? For that matter, not only prophecy, but if it's someone who is leading worship, someone who is preaching the word of God, it is, is it elevating the worship leader? Is it elevating the preacher? Or is it really glorifying God? Are all these means by which we glorify God? Second question is this. Does the prophetic word align with the scripture? We have the scripture. We can check things out with scripture. Is it in sync with the scripture? And you should do that for every other type of mode of ministry during time of worship. You should check my word to see whether I am in alignment with the scripture, the whole counsel of the word of God. Third question is this. Does the prophetic word build up the church? Does this word... Does this ministry actually help to build up the church or is it splitting the church? Is it causing problems in the hearts and the minds of the people? It is, it is trampling on their rights and trampling on their freedom or is it elevating them, empowering them? The fourth question is this. Does the prophetic word draw the people closer to Christ? Are they becoming more and more Christ-like as a result of that prophetic word, or any word, any word of instruction. Now, having said that, we also need to discern the prophetic minister. Oftentimes, we only hear the content that comes from the mouth of the minister, but we also need to see the minister and discern the minister. So, the first question would be, is the prophetic minister speaking in love? 
Or is his word simply harsh, just, just very judgmental? Because Paul talked about in chapter 13, everything should be done in love. So even if the gifts are emphasized, manifestations of the Spirit is emphasized, some kind of supernatural power is emphasized, is the minister really speaking and ministering out of love for the people? Second, is the prophetic minister able to restrain himself or herself? Is there self-control or is this person just going on and on and exacerbating the spirits of the people? So, in any kind of ministry type of setting, the number one rule is self-control. Even for a minister, I, I can go on and on preach for two hours as I've done, done in the yesteryears, but I can't do that because there's a restraint on me. I have my wife watching me and she, she's watching to see I don't go over, I think she allows me up to 40 minutes or so. If it goes beyond that, I'm, I'm dead. You know, I'm gone. And that's a good. I've learned to restrain myself because of that. If not, I could just go on and on. People will be just tired and worn and I'm leading them into drudgery. Okay? Third question is this. Is the prophetic minister submissive to others' judgments? Others' discernments? Or is it dominating the show and says, I'm right because you know, I am the preacher. I'm right because I'm the prophesier. I'm right because I'm leading the worship. I'm right because I'm the leader in this house. No, we should all be humble and allow others to discern what's happening and give us input and guidance. Finally, is the prophetic minister a person of good character? I think that's the most important thing, don't you think? Character that backs up that person's word. And I'd like to add one more to that. Is the prophetic minister psychologically stable? <laughs> I've learned to put this criteria and advocate this criteria because there are crazies out there. And we give them room in the church to just speak about nonsensical things. And so we should not be so gullible and so foolish to allow for any kind of baggages and any kind of emotionally dysfunctional things to enter into the body of Christ. So anybody who is representing the body, anybody who is speaking forth or leading and administrating, we should have a balanced sense of psychology. We should have a great sense of character. More than anything, we should be able to restrain ourselves. We should be humble enough to submit to other people's judgments. And more than anything, we should always speak and minister out of love. Amen? Amen. Amen. So I hope that you got something out of this message, and especially regarding women. More and more, I delve deeper into Paul's opinion about women and what Paul's teaching is regarding women and their role in the body of Christ. I would say practically every text, if you understand it in context, Paul is advocating that women should have voice and women should exercise leadership. And Paul is not one of those persons who is simply coming from a patriarchal perspective of things and trying to put down women and treating women as simply none better than like possessions. He's definitely not coming from that perspective. 
And I think I can prove that from rest of the other texts, including from the teaching or the letter to Timothy. So let's pray together.